following sermon was recorded at Chiang Mai Christian Fellowship in Chiang Mai, Thailand. For more information, please view our website at www.ccfth.org. Good morning, everyone. Uh, Thanks for joining in. Uh, This is kind of a special Sunday because we are going to be uh, looking at um, the very last section of Matthew. So, uh, if you've been with us on the journey from the beginning, uh, that's cool. If not, we're glad you're here now. Uh, We'll be looking uh, at Matthew chapter 28, verses 15 through 16. Uh, So let's uh, turn as we read together these verses. Uh, Matthew 28, 15 through 16. Um, Now, the eleven disciples went to Galilee to the mountain to which Jesus had directed them. And when they saw him, they worshipped him, but some doubted. And Jesus came and said to them, All authority in heaven and on earth has been given to me. Go, therefore, and make disciples of all nations, baptizing them in the name of the Father and of the Son and of the Holy Spirit, teaching them to observe all that I have all that I have commanded you. And behold, I am with you always to the end of the age. Uh, come to the end of Matthew. It's been a long journey uh, going through the book of Matthew. Uh, come to the end of Matthew, and um, Matthew's really been helping us understand from the beginning who Jesus is and what, what he came to do. And uh, we see Jesus as Messiah. We see Jesus as uh, the rightful king uh, on the throne of David. We see Jesus ultimately as the Savior who gave his life on the cross. Um, uh, and of course, it, uh, we, we just saw in the, in the cross, uh, Jesus laying down his life for us uh, as a Savior who takes away our sins, and then raising to new life, raising again uh, uh, in the resurrection, which validates all of Jesus' claims about who he said he was and what he came to do. And uh, so it ends with this great, really, climax of Jesus rising from the dead. Uh, but then we get these, these last few verses to uh, tie together a lot of loose ends that Matthew has woven through the book. And we're not going to actually uh, make all those connections, but it's a fascinating study, if you ever want to do, to see how uh, these last four verses really pull together a lot of what Matthew's been teaching through the whole book. But we come to this passage, and it's one that we're all, many of us may be familiar with as the Great Commission, uh, challenging us as Jesus' followers to be going out into the world and to make uh, followers, uh, disciples of all the nations. Um, and uh, we, we've heard this probably preached before, uh, if we've been in the church very long, or maybe we've heard this at missions conferences. Uh, but what's interesting is that often this passage gets taught really uh, focusing just on verses 19 through 20. Uh, and it's uh, common in missions conferences or in mission sermons to talk about go into the world and preach the gospel. And it's a, a good message. Uh, but something gets lost when we disconnect it from the context. And so since we've gone through the whole book of Matthew and we've really come up to this passage and this sermon uh, uh, from from the cross and from the resurrection, I want to really take the time to focus and help us see this passage in its context, because the full meaning of what's going on here uh, is is really more evident when we understand it uh, by what has led up to it. In fact, uh, Matthew 28, uh, 15 and 16 actually are connected. It's, it's missed in, in most of our English translations, but in the Greek, these verses connect together. They, they are one continuation so it goes like this. The, the guards took the money. Uh, if you remember last week, they, uh, the, the Jewish leaders bribed the guards to lie and to tell a story. So it says, so they took the money and did as they were directed. That is, they lied about falling asleep and the body of Jesus being stolen. And this story has been spread among the Jews to this day. But, verse 16, literally in Greek, but the eleven disciples went to Galilee, the mountain to which Jesus had directed them. So the picture here is that the book of Matthew ends with the guards telling one story 
according to uh, being bribed and according to being uh, instructed by the Jewish leaders to lie about Jesus' resurrection. But the disciples meet with Jesus and they're instructed to tell a very different story. So these verses are very much connected to uh, the resurrection account. And it's really a continuation of the resurrection account in Matthew. Um, and of course, the story that the disciples tell is not the result of, of just being instructed, but through their own eyewitness encounter with the resurrected Jesus. Uh, and we know from the other Gospels that they, they did encounter, they did meet with Jesus more than just in Galilee. But uh, Matthew skips ahead because he wants to really focus on uh, this last encounter where Jesus uh, gives the disciples uh, their mission. Uh, really, what is, what is next for them? Uh, and, and the important thing to see here is that what is next, this commission, this mission that Jesus gives to them, is, is a result of the truth of his resurrection. In other words, uh, Jesus has, has risen from the dead, so what's next for his disciples? And of course we know that Jesus leaves this earth, he doesn't stay and remain with them. So what's next for them? And only for them, but uh, by implication, by, by extension, what's next for us as Jesus' followers? Um, and we know that, uh, that Jesus uh, had a significant ministry on earth. And we know that Jesus' mi- mission, as he spells it out in Matthew 9.35, is that he went through all the cities and villages, teaching in their synagogues, and proclaiming the gospel of the kingdom, and healing every disease and affliction. Um, Matthew 4.17 It says that from that time, Jesus began to preach, saying, Repent, for the kingdom of heaven is at hand. And now uh, the resurrected Jesus really stands as the exalted king. And now, in in, in even a greater sense, the kingdom has come. Not the final kingdom, we still are waiting for that. But the reality of Jesus as king and his kingdom uh, is now more true than it ever was. As Jesus has taken away the obstacle of sin and death, and now there is access for all those who trust in Jesus, access into his kingdom. And that's really one of the main messages or themes of Matthew, that the kingdom has come for those who will enter into it. Uh, Not the final kingdom, but for those who want to live the kingdom life, it's available to them now. Uh, But but what is next? Is that all there is? Are we simply living the good life in the kingdom? Do we just kick back, get our, our, our smoothie, our mango smoothie, uh, get out our pool chair, sit by the pool, and enjoy the kingdom? Or is there more? Well, of course, we know that Jesus spells out here that you have work to do. You have a mission. You are in the kingdom, but you also, as kingdom residents, have a mission, a job, and a purpose to do. Uh, so I want to look this morning and really unpack this in light of its context. And one of the things that we see when we see it in its full context is that this... Um, passage is really all about Christ. And one of the unfortunate things when it gets taught outside of its context is it often can sound like this is really all about you and me. Like that Jesus has given us this job to do, and it's our role and our responsibility to go and to make disciples and save the world, and that the world is going to be lost forever if you don't do your job. Uh, But we will see that that's really a a great misunderstanding when we see it in the the context. Uh, From beginning to end, this passage is really all about Jesus. And if we don't see it in that light, we will will go uh, in a a bad direction. We will go astray as we try to fulfill and carry out the Great Commission. So let's see uh, the Great Commission, but see it in light of how it is all about Jesus. First... It's all about Jesus and that he is worthy of our worship. He is worthy of our greatest and highest worship. Verse 16. Uh, Again, now the eleven disciples went to Galilee, to the mountain to which Jesus had directed them. And when they saw him, they worshipped him. But some doubted. Uh, Matthew uh, stages this last scene in Galilee. Uh, and if you are familiar with the other Gospels, you know that, uh, uh, and even in Acts, that the final scene with Jesus is in, in, in Jerusalem. Uh, and it's likely that Jesus, we know that Jesus met in both, met the disciples in both places. But for, for Jesus, uh, for Matthew, Galilee is, is important. 
And the way Matthew has set up his gospel is he's made Galilee the place of Jesus' ministry and Jerusalem the place of Jesus' opposition and conflict with the Jewish leaders and ultimately the place of his death and, uh, of course, his resurrection. And it's not because Jesus uh, only did ministry in Galilee or because he never had conflict with Jewish leaders in Galilee, but for Matthew it's a, a very poetic way of distinguishing Jesus' ministry of proclaiming the kingdom with his sacrifice of giving himself as an atonement for sin. And so Matthew wants to stage this back in Galilee because what, what Jesus is talking about here is the continuation or the extension of his ministry. What he began in Galilee, the disciples are to continue to proclaim the gospel of the kingdom. And so by meeting the disciples here, it's a way of of connecting that, that they're really picking up where they left off. There was this significant interruption in ministry while Jesus goes to the cross and he uh, dies for our sins. But now they're back in Galilee, and really what this is about is Jesus saying, look, uh, things have not changed. My commission to you to preach the gospel of the kingdom is exactly what it was. The only thing has changed is that now we are doing it not only to Israel, but to all peoples. Um, uh, so, so that's the picture there. They're, they're in Galilee. They are continuing on uh, Jesus' ministry that he began. But now it will go far beyond Galilee to the ends of the, of the earth, as we will see. Um, so it's the same, same place, same location, same Galilee. But there's definitely a new understanding in the hearts and minds of the disciples. And uh, it's the 11. Of course, we've lost Judas, who, who uh, betrayed Jesus and took his own life. But now we see the 11. And one of the reasons that we know that the focus here is just is really Jesus is that the 11 don't get named, right? Uh, as, as we said, we saw uh, before the, the, the cross, Peter denying Jesus. But Peter's never mentioned again by name. Of course, there's John, and there's James, and there's the other disciples. But now they're just a group. They're a kind of nameless, somewhat faceless group. And that's partly because they represent all disciples. Right? It was to the eleven that Jesus gives us, but uh, they represent us. But the other thing is that it's really about Jesus. right? The focus here is not them. It's not about how Peter got over his betrayal, or how the other disciples got over their failure to Jesus. Now it's about the resurrected Jesus who appears to them. Um, and, and he comes to them and he appears to the eleven. Uh, but, uh, but there's a, a definitely a new understanding among the eleven. Right? It, says, it says, when they saw him, they worshipped him. Literally, the Greek word here means they bowed down at his feet. Same thing that the Marys did uh, when they saw Jesus at the tomb. They fell at his feet. And that's actually the reaction of people throughout Scripture when they have met the living God. Right? Whether it was Moses at the burning bush or uh, Isaiah at the, the holy throne room of heaven, uh, when people encounter the living God, they don't stand there uh, saying, Hey, God, it's good to meet you. Right? The right response is to fall on your face before him in awe and worship. And that's exactly what the disciples do. Um, and and uh, this is Jesus, this is the resurrected Jesus, the same Jesus that they always knew. But throughout the Gospels, uh, Matthew made it clear that they never quite fully grasped what it really meant for Jesus to be Messiah, Son of God. And they, they knew he was the Messiah. Peter makes this amazing declaration that he is the Son of God. But they never quite wrapped their minds around what that meant, the full implications of what it meant for Jesus to be Messiah, Son of God. But now with Jesus standing before them in his resurrected, glorified body. And by the way, uh, Jesus was not resurrected like Lazarus. Lazarus was resurrected with a very earthly human body. He came back to life. Uh, Resurrection in 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 the New Testament sense is not just coming back to life, but it's receiving our ultimate final resurrected body. A body that is not of this earth, that will not die or decay or get sick, right? It is a glorified, different body. And so Jesus is there in resurrection glory before them. And and they finally get it. He's not just Messiah in a human term. He is really God. And the worship they give to Jesus here is a worship 
that is only rightly given to God himself. And they've come to that realization. If Jesus rose from the dead and he stands before them now in his glorified, resurrected self, he's not just another guy. No matter how wise or how good of a teacher, uh, no matter how called or anointed as the Messiah, he is actually Lord. Uh, Not in the sense of just being master, but Lord as in capital L, God. And and they bow before him in worship. (coughs) And really their worship... Uh, is is at a whole new level um, because of this understanding of Jesus as God. And we see that um, as they fall before him uh, because of this word that's used, that they, it says they, they worshipped him, but some doubted. Uh, now, of course, we know like Thomas doubted Jesus, doubted that it was really Jesus, doubted that he really rose again. But what's interesting is this word doubt here is a different word. And it's not the kind of doubt that means that they don't believe it or don't believe the resurrection really happened or that it was really Jesus. But it's more the idea of being hesitant, of being a bit um, uncertain or maybe even confused. Right? It's a word that speaks of uh, not really knowing for sure uh, what, what this is all about. Um, and, and you can imagine that for these disciples... Uh, this, this had to mess with your head, right? Like, here's this Jesus who they, they knew as a human being and as a person, but all of a sudden now he's a very different being. He's in a very different category of humanity uh, because he's not just man, but he's the man God. And it does mess with their head, and so there's some hesitancy. And we don't know for sure what they were hesitant about. Uh, is it that they didn't really know that this was the actual Jesus? Were they hesitant about their own failures? Is Jesus really going to accept us? As we're standing before holy God, what about our mistakes for Peter who, who denied him, for the others who abandoned him? Maybe they're hesitant just about how they relate to Jesus now. Right? Like, before they could eat, eat lunch with him, they could hang out with him. But now he's the resurrected Lord, he's God how do they relate to him? Well, we're not exactly sure how, uh, but the point is that uh, for them, their worship is at, a, is at a, a whole new level of awe and wonder at the glory and majesty of Jesus. I don't know if you've, ever, if you've seen this YouTube video. Uh, since you're at home and you have access to your computer, you can do it right now. But there's this great sports prank video where a professional basketball player, Kyrie Irving, uh, dresses up like this really old man. And so here's this young uh, uh, rookie basketball, NBA player, great basketball player, and they dress him up uh, with makeup and everything to make him look like this like 75-year-old man. And they take him down to this uh, basketball court outdoors where people are playing these pickup games and all these guys who think they're all hot and tough stuff. And uh, this old guy wants to play with them, and they're joking, and they're making fun of him that, yeah, how could you possibly keep up with us? And so at first he kind of pretends like he's old, but kind of gets warmed up, and pretty soon, like, he's doing these moves that are mostly beyond possibility for most human beings, right? And he starts just smoking these guys, toasting them, and he starts dunking over them, and they're all, like, in awe, right? They are in awe uh, at what this old guy can do. But then at the end of the stunt, uh, they take the makeup off, and it's revealed that he's not just this old guy. He's actually uh, Kyrie Irving, who many of them knew. And what's interesting is, you know, when he, starts, when he starts beating them, they have some respect. But when it's uncovered who this guy really is, that he's one of their basketball heroes, an NBA great, they are in awe of him, right? They're in awe of him because he is uh, way more than what they thought, right? Well, that's exactly what happens here as they see the resurrected Jesus revealed in his glory. All of a sudden, he is not who they thought he was. He is now uh, revealed in his glory, and they are in awe of him. Same Jesus, but different, right? Same Jesus, but somehow he is so much more than what they ever knew him to be. And of course, they worship him. They worship him, right? Um, And that's an important place and an important perspective as we move forward into the Great Commission. 
that uh, what this is about is Jesus, who has revealed himself as the Son of God, living, incarnate, uh, who's given himself for us, but is raised, raised up in resurrected glory as God. Right? And he is worthy of our highest worship. And he's worthy of our worship, not just now, but for all eternity, as the one who has redeemed us and saved us. Uh, but also, as the New Testament further reveals, as the one who actually spoke the world into being. That Jesus, right? So they're in awe of him. Uh, and they're a little bit uh, uncertain. They're a little bit hesitant about how all this works going forward. Like now, how do they relate to him? This living Lord that, that they once knew uh, hanging out with them. Well, what's interesting is uh, we don't know for sure what all is wrapped up in this idea of their doubt or their hesitancy. But what we do know is what Jesus, how Jesus responds to them. And this is amazing. Verse 18, it says, And Jesus came and said to them, I'm going to stop there, because it's so easy to overlook those little words. Jesus came. Literally, uh, the Greek would be better translated literally, Jesus came to them and spoke and said to them. He came to them. He met them. Right? Jesus, uh, in their minds, was different. But in Jesus' eyes, nothing has changed. He's the same as he always was. Uh, granted, he's resurrected now, so it's more evident who he is. But Jesus has always been God. Right? It's just they didn't understand it. And where they may feel quite different towards Jesus, he is not any different toward them. And he comes to them, as he always had. He comes and he meets them. He doesn't stand aloof and far off. He doesn't levitate in the clouds. He, he comes to them as his disciples, as his Lord, to his disciples, as he always did. And he meets them, and he speaks to them in the same way that he always did. Um, and he says these amazing words to them. All authority in heaven and on earth has been given to me. All authority in heaven and earth has been given to me. Um, this is not new authority. Uh, it is the same king in the same kingdom. Right? Verse uh, Matthew 4.17, we saw this already. Jesus said, began to preach, saying, Repent, for the kingdom of heaven is at hand. Uh, Jesus is, is still the same king. It's the same kingdom. He was always king over them from the beginning of creation. He's been sovereign over heaven and earth. But now he is reigning at a new level. He has now been given full and final authority over, over all of heaven and earth. And it really is a reference back to, uh, which, uh, which has been true throughout Matthew, of Daniel 7, 13, and 14. Key verse in understanding who Jesus is as the Son of Man. Uh, let me read it again. I saw in the night visions, and behold, with the clouds of heaven there came one like a Son of Man. And that's why Jesus used this title of himself. Son of Man. And he came to the Ancient of Days and was presented before him. And to him, that is to Jesus, the Son of Man, was given dominion and glory and a kingdom that all peoples and nations and languages should serve him. His dominion is an everlasting dominion which shall not pass away, and his kingdom one that shall not be destroyed. So now Jesus in his resurrected glory has, has taken on the full authority of that kingdom. Yes, he was king before, but now he's overcome uh, every enemy. He's overcome death. He's overcome Satan. He's overcome the grave. And he's now will be exalted and seated at the right hand of the Father where he will reign and rule as king. So we see that Jesus is not only worthy of worship, but he is worthy to reign and to rule. Right? He is worthy to be king over all. Um, uh, so, 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 so back to my first question. Does that mean uh, Jesus come, he's raised, he's, he's now brought his kingdom? Does that mean that we can just kick back and enjoy this kingdom, right? He's, he's invited those who would come to come enter into his kingdom. And by faith through Christ, we now enter that kingdom so we can just chill in the kingdom, Right? Well, uh, really, Matthew could have ended his gospel right here. He could have, he could have ended it with, uh, with the disciples worshiping Jesus as, as the living God, 
and, and as the one who has right to reign and rule over all creation. And we could jump really from here right to Revelation chapter 22, where Jesus is seated on the throne uh, in his final glory, ruling his kingdom. Um, and, and really, worship is the highest call and ultimate purpose of every believer. Right? Ultimately, we are called to worship, and we will spend all eternity worshiping our, our blessed Lord, uh, the, the Lion and the Lamb, who will be seated on the throne, and we will be surrounding that throne through all eternity, praising and worshiping him because he is worthy of that. Um, but here's the thing. Worship uh, is, is our highest call, and it is our final goal. But it is not our only call or our only purpose. Um, and, and here's the point, I think, that we need to take away from this as we, as we step into the Great Commission. If Jesus is truly worthy of, of our greatest worship, and he is worthy to reign over all of heaven and earth, then it can't be just a personal matter. Right? It can't just end with me worshiping Jesus. It should be and must be our great concern as Jesus' followers that the entire world come to know and worship him. Right? We are to seek out and labor to see God uh, in Christ worshipped by every tribe and tongue and language and nation. Right? If he truly is the resurrected Lord of glory, uh, we should want to see that glory and that worship extend throughout the world. And that really has to be the backdrop of what, what goes forward from here in verses 19 and 20. That we go and we make disciples because Jesus is worthy of worship. Right? Not just because we have a mission. Right? We do have a mission. But that mission is not for us to save the world. Our mission is ultimately for us to lift up Jesus as the glorious Lord of salvation and of all creation so that people everywhere will worship him. Um, and unfortunately, uh, this, this gets taught oftentimes without that focus. And uh, you hear often, you know, we need to go out and make disciples who make disciples. And there's truth in that. Certainly, that is part of what the Great Commission is about. But if, if we stop there, then it becomes about the disciple, not about the glory of Jesus. Right? The mission becomes focused on me and what I do to make disciples, not on what we do to bring people into Jesus' presence so that they can love and worship him. Right? Even go back in, going back to Daniel, it says, so, uh, To him was given dominion and glory and a kingdom so that peoples and nations and languages should serve him should worship him, should know him. So, so that's a, a vital backdrop to what uh, Jesus tells us in verses 19 and 20. This is ultimately about his glory and his honor in the world. And, and the rest of the New Testament supports that. Um, so how, how many, uh, how many uh, Christians and even churches, um, unfortunately, are content with just worship, Right? Unfortunately, all too often, uh, people want to worship God and they feel like that is enough. And they fail to understand that if we are to really worship God, we must also be proclaiming his glory to all those around us. Our ultimate motivation must be his glory, not just fulfilling some task or some mission. Um, and what happens is, is oftentimes we, we make worship so much the end that we extinguish our, our light. Right? Like Jesus said in Matthew 14, You are the light of the world, a city set on a hill, cannot be hidden. Do not, uh, nor do people light a lamp and put it under a basket. But if we make our own personal worship the end, we do that. We, we smother the lamp. And we lose our light and our witness for Christ. Uh, so, 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 so that's the backdrop. And then Jesus does give this great commission. He says, therefore, in light of all that, go and make disciples of all nations, baptizing them in the name of the Father and the Son and the Holy Spirit, teaching them to observe all that I have commanded you. 
And behold, I am with you to the end of the age. Uh, if he is worthy uh, to reign, uh, he is worthy to be he, he he is worthy to reign and be worshipped by all. Right? That's the great commission. And so we are sent on a mission to raise up disciples of the nations. Uh, in this passage, and maybe you know this, uh, there's really one main verb, and the main verb is the verb disciple. Uh, the other verbs around it uh, support that one main idea. So the Great Commission is to disciple, disciple the nations. And we do that three ways. We do that by going, by baptizing, and by teaching. So let's, let's look briefly at what, what that involves for us. Uh, first, we need to define what a disciple is, because that's what this is all about. He says, go and make disciples. We are to disciple the nations. What exactly is a disciple? Well, uh, if you've been with us in the journey through Matthew, you know that a disciple is one who is a follower of Christ. And by following Jesus, we mean somebody who's adopting a lifestyle, goals, and priorities uh, that are the same as the master, Right? It is to imitate Jesus and to hold the same ideals and values that he does as the master. Um, uh, one uh, Erdman's Bible Dictionary puts it this way. This Greek word uh, reflects the sense of the disciple as an adherent to the teachings of a particular teacher of school or thought, in this case, Jesus. Uh, so it's, it's one who follows Jesus, not just in word, but by conforming our life, to the very pattern of Jesus' life. Um, and in this passage, uh, it's translated in most Bibles, make disciples. Um, and th- that is a possible translation, but I don't really like it, and it's actually not the best way to translate the Greek word. Uh, because it makes it sound like it's our job to transform broken, messed up, sinful people into Christ's followers. And that's the idea of go and make them, make them a disciple. Like you make cookies, you make a house, you make furniture, you make disciples, right? And it puts the emphasis on what we do to create disciples. Uh, but uh, that, that is really something that we cannot do. Uh, we do not have the, the power to transform a life so that they can be a Christ follower. Only God can do that through the work of Jesus on the cross by the power of the Holy Spirit. So, so a better translation is just the word discipling. Go and disciple the nations. And that's really, literally what the word is. It's just the word disciple. There's no make. That's not in the Greek. We are just to disciple the nations. And discipling uh, is literally uh, the activity of teaching and training and mentoring. This idea of giving others the understanding and skills they need so that they can be this follower of Christ. Uh, so, so the focus here is what we will do, and we'll see in a minute, on teaching, on equipping, on giving them the resources and skills so that they can be a follower. Because it's really Jesus who is making them a disciple, right? We're simply helping in the process by training them, by teaching them. Another key word we don't want to miss is the, is the word therefore. Uh, go therefore and make disciples. Um, uh, and, and so before we look at the how of discipling, we need to understand what this therefore links to, and therefore is connected to what Jesus has already said. It is because Jesus rules and reigns, it is because he is worthy of worship that we are to go. And, and it's important to keep in perspective that Jesus is the Lord, right? He is the master, he is the sovereign, he is the king. And it is based on his authority and his sovereign rule that we are being sent by him to go and make disciples. Again, it's not about us, right? It's not about us deciding how we're going to go out and save the world. It is about Jesus sending us as his disciples to make, uh, uh, to, to partner with him in discipling those he is calling to himself. Um, He is the power behind it. We are simply his servants doing what he calls us to. We are to call to be witnesses of his work uh, to the lost world. Uh, But but no one's going to get saved because of our 
work, right? Nobody's going to get saved because of what I've done, because of my techniques or methods. Uh, Discipleship movements do not happen as a result of my brilliant strategy or my effort or my my great methods, right? It is it is ultimately the work of God uh, through Christ and His Spirit, who is the, the the one with authority, right? Um, and so that's why uh, Matthew nine thirty seven and thirty eight, Jesus said this: uh, the harvest is plentiful. But the laborers are few. Therefore, pray earnestly to the Lord of the harvest to send out laborers into his harvest. We are to go, but ultimately we go as those sent by God, not by those who are taking on ourselves a mission to save the world. And, and uh, again, these three verbs, we've got the, the main verb, disciple. You're to go into disciple. We do that in three ways. First, we do that by going. Uh, now, of course, you're at a, if you're at a missions conference, uh, uh, the speaker will always say, you need to go to the ends of the world. And if you're in Thailand and you're a missionary, then that's what you've done, right? You've gone to other places. But really the idea here is simply to go to those who are lost, right? To go to those who don't know Christ. And so it may be across the street. It may be across the ocean. The point here is that if Jesus is the Lord of the harvest, he's the one who directs us. And it could even be translated as you go, as you are going about your daily life and activity, as you encounter people who do not know Christ, uh, disciple them, right? Disciple them. Uh, so how else do we do that? We do that by going, uh, by, by being salt and light wherever we are, uh, and proclaiming the kingdom, right? Um, second thing, he says we do that by baptizing, um, so uh, Craig Keener writes in his commentary, first of all, one baptizes them under the rulership of Christ. Baptism was an act of initiation and conversion. Uh, so the first step is we, we baptize new believers who have put their faith in Christ. And really, baptism is the final step in a process of a person coming to faith in Christ. Uh, and, and we really are not responsible for that whole process uh, the discipleship part is just baptizing uh, those who Jesus has been working with in that process. And what's that process? Well, it in, it's a process that involves repentance. Uh, repentance is coming to a place of acknowledging that we are sinful beings. Not only in what we do, but in our very being, we are corrupt. We are sinful. We are fallen. We are under the curse of sin from Adam and Eve. Uh, we are guilty because of our own behavior, our own thoughts and our own words of dishonoring God. But ultimately, we are guilty of rejecting God as God and trying to be Lord over our own life. So even the most moral person who, uh, who does all the outwardly good things is guilty of a heart that's rebellious against God. And the first step of that process is, is repentance, is realizing that I have been rebellious against God. And we repent of that. That is, we turn away from that old life of sin and we turn to Christ. And we put our trust in Him, in His death on the cross as our substitute who paid the full penalty of that sin and who gives us new life through the work of the cross. Right? And when people have done that, when they've, when they've taken those steps of repentance and faith, the final step is to come before the church, the body of Christ, and say, I want to be baptized. I want to be initiated into the family of God, his church. And I want to confirm and make public to the world the faith and the work of Christ that's taken place in my heart. And that's what baptism is. And I love that our part of it is just to baptize. And, and it's not a hard thing. You know, we just take somebody, we dunk them underwater. You know, there's, uh, it's not hard, right? Uh, that's because the real work of saving people, of bringing to that point is something that God does by his spirit. Now, we may have a part in proclaiming the message of salvation. Right? We may have a part in proclaiming to people that they are lost, that they are sinful, that they are broken, and they need salvation and redemption and healing in Christ uh, that's available only in Christ through his cross. Right? We speak that message, and we proclaim that message. But ultimately, our, our part in the salvation process is only 
uh, to baptize them. And that's something that the, the pastor or the one baptizing them does, but also the church participates in. And we witness together uh, this rite of passage as people uh, publicly go from the kingdom of darkness to the kingdom of light, right? And to make visible the work that Christ has done in them, right? Uh, we put our seal of approval on it, in a sense, through the rite of baptism. Um, and, and Jesus says we baptize them uh, not in my name, not in the name of the church, not in the name of Ching Mai Christian Fellowship, not in the name of a denomination, but in the name of the Father and the Son and the Holy Spirit. Right? Uh, we are baptized into uh, Christ, into the triune God. And again, it's this picture of uh, of acknowledging our lordship. D.A. Carson puts it this way, the preposition, preposition into strongly suggests a coming into relationship with or a coming under the lordship of Jesus. Right? It is a sign both of entrance into Messiah's covenant community and of pledged submission to his lordship. And that's what it means to be baptized into his name. It's not just that we say his name over them as they get baptized, but it's a picture of the person uh, truly coming as a disciple, as one who's making the pledge to follow Christ with their whole life, acknowledging him as Lord and Master. And it's also a beautiful picture of the Trinity. Uh, the word name is single. There's one name, but three persons. And it's a great picture, uh, and, and really the clearest declaration of the Trinity in the Gospels. Uh, Jesus is God, the Son, but Jesus is not the Father. But the Father and the Son together with the Spirit are the name God. Right? Uh, I'll let you unpack all of that and, and do the mental gymnastics to figure that one on your own. Uh, but it's this great picture of the triune God. Okay, so, so we're discipling by going. We're discipling by, making, by baptizing. And ultimately we are discipling uh, by teaching. And baptism is a process that ends with one final act. Teaching, on the other hand, is an ongoing process that is probably lifelong. Like in church, we never have a final graduation service for disciples saying, they have finally arrived, right? Uh, today, Craig is back there doing PowerPoint. You can't see him. Uh, but we're not going to have a service today where we bring Craig up here and say, Craig, you have finally graduated from discipleship. You've arrived. You're there, right? No, that doesn't happen till we die, right? Discipleship, this, this need to be trained and taught and to grow in our walk with Christ as disciples is a lifelong venture, a lifelong process, right? There is no graduation apart from death, right, when we move into the next life, uh, and, and, and as I said, this, this idea of discipling, it, it is primarily a teaching role, right? Teaching them to obey all that he commanded. And the word obey or observe here really has the idea of not following a set of rules, but it, it has the idea of conforming your life and actions to the standard Jesus taught. It is adopting this new lifestyle and changing the way we live to reflect Christ in all that we do. We are to live according to his commands. That is, the things that Jesus taught and instructed. Um, and, and it doesn't mean that we uh, cut out the Old Testament. It doesn't mean that we only teach the, what Jesus said in the four Gospels. But, but what it means is that now, everything in the Old Testament gets interpreted through the teaching of Christ. Right? We teach the Old Testament in a way that points to how it is fulfilled in Christ. And according to how Jesus interpreted the Old Testament law in light of the New Covenant. Right? So, and then the rest of the New Testament unpacks and unfolds all that Jesus taught and commanded. Right? The apostles, Paul and Peter and John, are, are unpacking for us. They are teaching us the commands and teachings of Christ. Um, and, and the goal is that we teach so that people just don't have information or knowledge. We teach toward obedience, right? We teach so that they put these things into our life, so that they practice them, so that they live them, 
at the very core of their being. Uh, well, well, how do we teach? Uh, well, I want to say first off that this is really not about methods. Like Jesus doesn't give here his preferred or prescribed way to teach. Um, uh, but it's interesting when you talk about discipleship and when you read books, it all comes down to a method or a strategy or a technique that is surely the best in all the world. And the reason that other people don't have disciples as good as, as, as they could is because they have the wrong method. Now, it's, it's good to have methods, and I'm not saying methods are bad. But I think uh, Scripture would affirm that there are lots of ways to teach, right? Uh, God gave a variety of gifts because there are a variety of ways to disciple, to teach, and to train. Lots of ways. I once had, actually this person said this to me several times, and it just annoys me every time. But somebody once told me that preaching was not very effective discipleship. Right? And that his method for discipleship was really the, the right way to make disciples. And he always kind of says it with this implication that, it, that really I should just quit preaching and I should do discipleship the way he does it, right? Because that's really the way real disciples are made. But I think scripture would say, no, there are many gifts, there are many ways, there are a variety of means because God works through all of them and we need them all because each has its way, right? Each has its way of working into our hearts and minds God's word so that we would be not conformed to the world, but be transformed by the renewing of our minds. Um, but let me give you some principles as we think about teaching. Just some general principles I think are important as we think about how we disciple others. Uh, first important principle, uh, learn it first, right? You can't teach what you don't know. And, and we need to first be discipled, to be a disciple who is ourselves learning the commands and teachings of Christ um, so that we know them. Uh, we, we, we do, in a sense, disciple ourselves as we study the Word. Right? Now, now Scripture is clear that we can never solely disciple ourselves. We, we need the body of Christ. We need others speaking into our life truth. But, but we can learn. We learn from others. We learn from good teaching. We learn from our own study of Scripture. And to be a good disciple maker, we must uh, first be a good disciple who's, who's learning it. But not only do we need to learn it, we also need to live it. Right? We need to live uh, out everything that Jesus commanded. Right? We must be those who obey it. And the principle here really is that we uh, teach uh, Largely through our example. Uh, and I would say that if we are not an example of the things that we teach, we actually cancel out everything that we say. Right? Uh, we, need to, we need to live it if we are going to teach it. So Paul says in 1 Timothy 4 to, Tim, uh, to Timothy, be an example in speech, conduct, love, faith, and purity. And uh, it's sad, every day I feel like I see uh, a new news story about some pastor, some famous pastor, some megachurch pastor who has not been an example of the very things they teach. And every time they undermine their own words, right? They, they, make, uh, they, they disqualify everything that they've said. The most tragic example of that really uh, in recent the last year is Ravi Zacharias, uh, who taught all these great things, but now when it's come out uh, what his life really was, uh, because he was not an example of what he taught, it really, in many ways, discredits everything that he said. So if you want to be teaching others, if we want to be discipling others, we need to be an example. An example doesn't always mean that we do it perfectly. Part of the example is being honest about our own failures and honest about how we receive Christ's love and forgiveness and transforming work when we mess up. Right? Uh, but we must be an example in all of those things. Uh, next thing, teach uh, every chance you get. Right? Teach every chance you get. Whether it's one-on-one, -on -one, whether it's in a small group, whether it's as a parent to your children or uh, with a friend, brother to brother, uh, 
teach every chance you get. Um, and, and I think uh, the context of this is very relational. Uh, now, it's not always in relationships. Uh, some of my mentors have been guys who are long dead, who I read their books, right? I don't really have that close of a relationship with them anymore because they're dead. Um, so it's not, always, it's not always that way, but it, it is often uh, through intentional relationships that we share life together. And certainly Jesus did that. He taught the crowds, and that was a form of discipleship. But he also lived with the, the twelve and walked with them and in a very intentional way shared and spoke truth into their life moment by moment. And the beauty of that kind of teaching one-on-one in everyday life is that real things come up, right? Real conflict, real disagreements, uh, real struggles. And there's something extremely powerful about being able to speak Jesus' words into those real-life moments, right? And it does take a level of maturity and grace to do that. But it's powerful when we can speak truth into those daily moments. Uh, but also uh, teach formally when you can, whether it's in small groups or one-on-one or in large groups. Um, and, and use your gifts, right? God's given each of us a way to be discipling others, and it's through our spiritual gifts. So use your gifts, whether it's writing or speaking or encouraging or correcting or blogging or posting on Facebook or making videos or using media or uh, by leading and, or organizing, right? Use your spiritual gifts in order to disciple, right? In order to teach others how to walk and live and follow Christ. Lastly, last principle, uh, it's a team effort, right? Uh, you hear people talk about, well, my disciple, or I've got a disciple, like, like it's a pet dog or something, right? It, it's not, right? Discipleship is a group effort, and we as the body of Christ are discipling each other. I don't have my own disciple, right? But I have a part, a piece, a small piece in discipling many people, Right? I don't have one person who's discipled me, who's my guru, right? I have many people who are speaking into my life in many different ways, some formally, some informally, some in ways they may not even know, right? It's, it's a team effort. It's the body of Christ working together as we disciple each other. Uh, and we need to think of it more in those terms, that I have a part in discipling many people, and my gifts and my ability uh, are important in the body of Christ. And it's all part of this great work that Jesus has given us of discipling, of teaching and training others uh, to obey all that Jesus taught and commanded. Well, there's, of course, a lot more we could say about that, um, but, but we need to close up. So let me wrap up with one last point, the last verse. Uh, He says, the last statement, really, in verse 20, he says, And behold, I am with you always to the end of the age. Like I said, this from beginning to end is about Christ. It is first about his glory as the one who was given authority to reign and rule, right, as resurrected Lord. Second, we see that it it is Jesus who sends us out, and it is Jesus who saves people so that we have somebody to baptize Right? We don't make converts, but Jesus is the one who saves them. And we simply uh, welcome them into the church and the family. Uh, and then we see that as we teach, it's really God himself who, who gives us uh, gifts of the Spirit. It's the Holy Spirit who gives us these gifts and who empowers our words so that they're effective. And, 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 and in the end, Jesus says, look, and I am with you always. Behold, look, I am never going to abandon you. I'm leaving you physically, but I am with you to the end. And the picture here is one of our dependence on Christ. Jesus doesn't say, hey, look, I'm sending you out. You guys are amazing. You got this. Uh, I'll check in with you in heaven someday. Uh, Bye. No, that's not what he says. He says, I'm sending you out, and, and look, I am going with you always. You need me. And I will always be there giving you everything you need to be successful in discipling the nations. Uh, and, and, I, and I love this word. He says, I, I am with you personally. I am with you. Uh, this goes all the way back to 
uh, the very beginning of creation. God created the world so that he could be in fellowship and communion with us. And you saw that in the garden with Adam and Eve, where, where God met with them. God was with them. But because of sin, all that got broken and lost. And the temple and the tabernacle, even in, in the wilderness, was an effort to bring God back into close relationship with his people. But even that didn't work because of sin. But now, because Jesus has paid the full penalty of sin and he is the resurrected Lord, it's finally a reality for us. God himself is with us in the person of Christ through his spirit. right? And we need his help. right? We need his presence. And we are to live life as disciples, not only doing his work, but we are to live with him. With him. And he says... He says, I, I am with you always. The, 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 the literal translation of that would really be the whole of every day. I'm with you daily, literally is what it says. Day after day after day. Not just all the time, but day by day in your day in and day out work. I am there with you. I am a presence in your life. And not only am I with you day by day, the whole of every day, but I am with you to the end of the age. That means in every generation, Jesus promises to be with those who are his followers. So this isn't just for the eleven, but it's for their disciples, and their disciples, and their disciples, on down through the ages, so that every generation has this amazing promise. Jesus says, I am with you. To be worshipped, but also to be your friend. Right? I come with you is the same Jesus who walked with the disciples to be with you, to help you, to guide you, to empower you, to send you, to teach you so that you can teach others. What an amazing privilege we get as we end the book of, of Matthew and you look forward to Jesus' second coming, that in between his leaving and his return, we get to do his work, right? The same ministry that Jesus sent the eleven out on to proclaim the gospel of the kingdom. We get that same privilege to join with Jesus in making his name great. To making his name honored and worshipped in, uh, in every tribe and tongue and language. Here in Thailand, in Myanmar, in the countries where you are working and having influence. right? And we do it with Jesus at our side. Let's pray. Lord Jesus, we do thank you so much that you are Lord, resurrected in glory, overcoming death, and worthy of all glory and honor and praise. And Lord, may we never do the work of discipling without first acknowledging you as Lord who we worship. And realizing that it is is this Lord who is worthy of worship uh, that we proclaim. And Lord, may we, may we worship you first and foremost. But because you are worthy of worship, because you are worthy to reign and rule, may we also be serious about proclaiming you as Savior and Lord everywhere we go. And, and Lord, we just uh, thank you for this privilege. And may we take it seriously. Whether we've been a believer for a day or for our whole life, may we uh, be faithful in the task of discipling others, uh, in teaching and training others to walk with you. But may we do it in in a way that we are fully dependent on you, on this Jesus who is with us, uh, who has yoked himself with us. Lord, may we remember that uh, we take on your yoke and we partner with you in doing the work of ministry so that we do it by your strength and by your power and by your wisdom. And Lord, forgive us where we have have thought it depended on us, where we've taken uh, too much on ourselves the responsibility of saving the world, uh, which only belongs to you. But may we be faithful. Lord, may we be faithful as examples. May we be faithful as disciples. And may we be faithful as those who proclaim the kingdom and teach those who are your children. We pray in Jesus' name.
You've been listening to a sermon recorded at Chiang Mai Christian Fellowship in Chiang Mai, Thailand. For more information, please view our website at www.ccfth.org.